Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we are diving into part two of our food and environmental allergens and IBS presentation. I am super excited because last week, Dr. Kapadia dropped us on a cliffhanger of now we know we need to look for this other thing that we never knew about. How do we test for it? How do we treat for it? Okay, Ami, dive in. I'm ready. Okay, so we talked about testing for food and environmental allergens last time kind of scattered throughout. So I want to do a brief recap of that and then we'll jump into treatment. Um, so basically, my uh, my favorite approach to figuring out food sensitivities is the Elimination Challenge Diet, which we did talk about some. My favorite resource is a book and a program by a nutritionist, Tom Maltair. Have you have you mm-hmm. heard of him? Yeah, mm-hmm. heard you of haven't it. heard of I feel like you you probably know his book. Um, What's it called? There's you know? the whole, I think it was Whole Life Nutrition Cookbook, maybe, something like that. Oh. But now there's the Elimination Diet book itself and he and his wife run a program oh they they're whole... they're bastier grads i think so. that is one of my favorite cookbooks ever yeah <laughs> yeah no yeah, yeah. it's such a good cookbook actually they're really good and so they they kind of walk you through how to do that um and that that's really the gold standard for figuring out food sensitivities we did talk about igg food sensitivity testing and how that has pros and cons false positives false negatives but i do use that sometimes and do find it helpful um you, you want to go over it with a practitioner who's looked at hundreds of them because it can be confusing for patients. You have to know it's not definitely not a hundred percent accurate. Um, I will. Do you know how I th- how I quantify that one? How do you? I'm always like, oh, my patients are all have intestinal permeability and chronic GI stuff. Mm-hmm. This is a very expensive way to me for me to see what they're eating That's all exactly day long. Exactly what I think too. Yeah. I disagree. Okay, you can get it for a hundred dollars, and I do find patterns of foods that show up that. I find more commonly are causing problems and filtering those out from the ones that are mostly from exposure and ingestion. Can you? How do you differentiate yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's basically the foods I have people go off on, on an elimination challenge diet, the uh-huh. gluten, dairy, soy, corn, egg, yeast, caveat, gluten, you can't tell from an IgG food, food sensitivity test. But if any of those other ones show up, those are the ones I tend to focus on. Um, and I, I can't say I have full scientific, like scientific yeah. backing why I'm removing those foods and not the other few that are showing up. But I definitely have patients who have chronic GI stuff where their IgG panel looks really good. And I have other people where um, they have many show up and all in between. So I don't think necessarily just because someone has chronic GI issues that they're in the food sensitivity ATP so category. even if you fix permeability issues... Some people still will still have 
Correct. Some okay. some foods for some people. Mm-hmm. For other people, some of them are reversible. So, for example, if it's like blueberries, I'm, I say don't worry about it. That's I don't think so you're allergic funny. to blueberries. Because when I, the way that I always look at that test is... There are things that you're eating all the time. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing is I feel like a lot of people, by the time they're seeing me, they've already cut so many things out of their diet. Mm-hmm. Right? And so now and I'm going to give them... And I don't them... typically order that test on those people. Yeah, okay. So that's yeah. good. Yeah. I yeah, think that's yeah. helpful. Yeah. Then uh, for me, there are like certain off, off riders that are yeah. like, oh, I never eat papaya or I never eat right. cashews. And right. then I'm like, okay, that one's probably important. Oh, interesting. Or maybe a false negative. I don't know. Yeah. False positive. False positive. Yeah. So I really... I- I don't order the test when someone's already on a restrictive diet. I tend to order it in someone where we're not sure if food sensitivities are playing a role at all. We're not ready to go into a full elimination challenge diet. And I want to just get some something to say, like, is it worth even going down this path at all? Because there are published studies both positive and negative, removing IgG food sensitivities for people with IBS. And some of them show yeah, I, significant but, change and others don't. But I so, feel like they don't control for intestinal permeability issues in those studies. I don't even know how they could. Exactly. Like, what are we supposed to do, a man, uh, lactulose so mannitol I, or zonulin? I know, or... but I feel hesitant to remove food from mm-hmm. people's diets without, like, this I, and, is absolutely the only thing. Yeah, and I definitely it? don't, I definitely do, never remove everything that shows up. I yeah. use it as kind of like a starting point for, like, do we want to delve into this realm for the big ones that often cause problems for people? Yeah. And it showed up on your IgG panel. Do we want to try to do a modified elimination challenge for those couple foods? Okay, so let me just, let me just hear, let me just qualify. Yeah. what I'm hearing you tell me okay. if I'm correct okay. what I'm hearing is if you're kind of if they're not necessarily having a ton of GI issues well they usually have some GI issues okay. and uh, often rosacea or some other acne or something yeah, where yeah. we're like do More we systemic. think there's a yeah do we think there's a food problem most of our patients do have GI issues so th- they yeah. do have they do have GI issues but they're, they're not in the group of patients that has removed I don't I don't want to further restrict people who've already kind of gotten themselves they're already corner. down to five foods yeah. now we're going to take away that are these are often people who are eating a pretty normal diet that's healthy, but we're one, they're curious, and I'm curious, are food sensitivities playing a role in their overall picture? And if you see some of your big eight, but not all of your big eight, is it big eight? Six, I think. Okay. Your big yeah. six, but not all of your big right. six come up. Right. Would you then pull all of your big six? I mean, that would be ideal, but that's hard for people. So if I at least have some IgG something showing up, I feel like I can... It's easier to, to to potentially have someone be agreeable to doing like three weeks off. Do you, you know? ever retest and find consistency or inconsistency with it? If they stop eating it, the IgGs go down. Right. But if if that's the only way it'll go down is avoidance. Yeah. It, I sus- I don't I don't retest enough to know like if you fix fix enough other factors, yeah. do you get rid of some of those extraneous ones that are showing up? Yeah. And what, what I'm don't hearing do a lot is, of retesting, as opposed to putting them on this really really complicated big six elimination diet, you're like let me just pull let me just pick a couple of ones that come up positive, so it's not as egregious. I- Ideally, they do the doc that Tom Maltier really is the first person like 20 years ago. I think I um, maybe I heard him speak or I don't remember exactly, but I I remember we matched up in what we were removing. Like I I felt good about these six foods and it's not that hard, but you do have to cook your food. Right. So if you can do that, that's the best. Doing his program is the best. Yeah. But if that's not doable. I feel like this is a, a second line potential approach where we make we might get some traction because they are the most commonly common ones. And if some of them light up on the test, 
someone's more willing to potentially it might be a, a patient motivator for trying it i just want to add in one more thing so i'm pretty against the igg or igg4 yeah. testing except in children and granted mm-hmm. this is going to become a caveat because i don't treat kids right but i do find like i talk to enough naturopaths who treat peds yeah and i think that for pediatrics this is it could really be a very useful test well back to what we were saying earlier about kids have more permeability at least babies yeah. have more permeability yeah it might just be something to help until they get stronger guts i mean i'm i think people are using this like long beyond the two years when yeah. baby's GI is fully formed. I think they're using it in like childhood and getting right. good Right, I just efficacy. ordered it on a three-year-old. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, just because again, I don't want to put the three-year-old right. on elimination diet, but I want some sense of like, is food reactivity part of this chronic eczema yeah. that this kid has? Mm-hmm. And you know, the other thing I want to say is when it comes up positive, that does not mean forever no, you need to avoid it. And that not. education is not being done. Okay, well, that's a problem. I mean, I think for some people, some of those foods are forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always their choice if they want to have the symptoms or eat the food. I think for other people, often my patient population will identify one to three big food triggers for them. We've talked about gluten, mm-hmm. dairy, egg are the most common. We find tend to be problematic corn and soy sometimes. And often they can eat it. You know, one of the tricks I learned from one of the environmental medicine doctors I trained with was you can kind of trick your immune system if you remove it for a period of time and only eat it once every three mm-hmm. to seven days. Then, you know, you, you eat generally well at home. You go out to eat. You don't have to worry about it. So you don't have to kind of get yourself I would in the start corner, you know. So, I but for other people, every that. time they eat something, they are not going to feel good. But they can then make that decision if they want to do it or not. Mm-hmm. And right? I also will say, like, so I have this whole thing with my younger baby where... I nurse. I stopped nursing him. I was making him a homemade almond milk formula, and then we all got noro, oh, man. and it was awful. Yes. I mean, it was oh, yeah. like the worst diarrhea ever. It lasted for like six months. It was awful. Oh. But he has been super intolerant to almonds. Oh and no! Every time he eats them, he I gets consume so many almonds. Dude, products. the 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 farts that he lets out, like <laughs> nobody. It's not worth it for anybody. Still? So it set six for six years. I would like yeah. put it in like once or twice a right, year right. just to check every time. Terrible gas. Okay. Seven years. It took seven years, now and now he can tolerate okay, almonds. Good, because probably doesn't have intestinal permeability anymore. Maybe, maybe because maybe all his he body eats is protein. Forgot about. But I think it took time. Yeah. And I would like put a foot in, put it out, put. And... That's what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, as long as it's not an IgE reaction, I yeah. encourage people to test every so often. I do find eggs show up a lot on the food sensitivity panel, and people not have a reaction to it. I can't. Huh. I know amongst my approach, mm-hmm. that's the one food I often. My, they're very compliant. They do the whole thing, and they're like, "I just don't feel any different when I eat it." So I tell them, "Don't worry about it." Then that yep. means you're fine. So oh, great. for whatever reason, maybe I don't know something antigenic in there shows up more for that particular food, even when it's not causing a problem or it's yeah. causing a problem, and we don't know what that is. So I don't even know. if they they don't have symptoms, you'll let them go for it, and you're not worried about it causing inflammation. I or... mean, unless they have another case story that one of the our mentors said is nephrotic syndrome from eating egg. A patient of his had reproducible nephrotic syndrome on urinary testing from and i don't know that that was causing anything else for them but there was like objective data so if someone has something serious you know where we can track it with a (laughs) lab marker and they still feel okay but obviously it's doing something bad then yeah we want to remove it but if we if i cannot identify anything i really i need to have i'm not going to just ask someone to do something difficult word i think exception of killing your kidneys Yes. Have at it. That's yes. very, but that's very uh, but diagnosable. That's a very interesting case. <laughs> yes, right? I would I say mean, yes. Okay, so um, we talked about um, IgG testing. So now, for environmental allergens, we talked about how, as sort of 
um, general practitioners, I do like to start with an IgE inhalant panel because it's something we can do. Which is the Region 17, I'm pretty sure. Quest or LabCorp, generally covered with insurance. Knock on wood, no no problems yet. Um, And so I'll run that on patients. And if that's negative, like we talked about, for various reasons we discussed in the last episode, and I'm still worried about inhalant allergens because they tell me they seem allergic, then I'll send them to the allergist for mm-hmm. uh, for skin testing for for environmental allergens. So that's how I talk about food and environmental allergens that we think might be affecting their and GI you, symptoms. This is kind of like my last question, but do you get overlap between the skin prick and what you're getting on that blood panel? It's a good question. I've had some patients who have done both. There is overlap. It's certainly not 100%. Yeah. So... That's a good question, actually. Um, okay. So then let's talk about treatment. Um, about time. Yes. Okay, treatment. So, <laughs> you know, this part is always tricky because I feel like we need, uh, like, a group class video that we should just make everyone watch about basic lifestyle tips. Uh-huh. We've talked about with the Ayurvedic medicine course I'm taking, we just, just like... We in America like do very odd things sometimes. Like we have no historical culture for either food or maintaining health. Right. We don't. So you eat like a bag of nuts, okay? Right. In Ayurveda, they're like, this is a heavy food. Yeah. yeah. Have a handful, you yeah. know, for your snack. You shouldn't. I mean, we shouldn't be eating like a jar of almond butter a day. Oh, good. It's not as good <laughs> as peanut butter, but especially with good. the right amount of salt. Like that salt. Yeah. It's still not as good as peanut butter, but. Yeah. Butter has mold mycotoxins, yeah, I guess. About that. Anyway. Um, that doesn't slow me down. So yeah. we want to basically go over these basic principles in some format if we can. Try not to eat constantly throughout the day. Like eat Very a couple important. meals. Eat a snack if you need it here and there. But don't just eat when you're uncomfortable like many of us do. Yep. <laughs> when you're stressed, etc. One of our friends at work said, You're allowed you can be uncomfortable. I said, What do you do when you're doing your charts? I just keep eating stuff. <laughs> they said, It's okay to be uncomfortable. Not, I don't like being uncomfortable. Yeah, me neither. Um But think about it. You can have tea, you know, things that don't have like food substances would be better to give your digestion some time in between actual meals. Or bulk up your last meal with protein and fat. I will also say, I do think there is a thing with ending your meal with sweet. Like yeah, having yeah. a fruit, I, I think yeah. it get, makes you feel satiated. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. yeah. So but it's a about. meal. We're ending a meal and we're not continuing to eat for another three to five hours. Exactly. Five hours yeah. is better than three hours. Or I d- a little ginger snap. That's one Ooh, of my favorites. Like a, a ginger, ginger snap. Like co- a cookie? Yeah. Mm. Like an almond oh, flour back to these almonds. Almond flour ginger snap cookie. I'm shout out to those. I there's no cookie I don't like. Um, <laughs> Ooh, just as an aside, one of my patients was telling me that she's making miso chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. I'm gonna try this miso for the salt. Yeah, uh, I don't know about oh, that. Oh, I'm gonna try great. it. I'm gonna try it. I'll get back to you. Okay. I've had miso caramel sauce. Ooh, that was pretty good. Now I'm hungry. Yeah. Okay, right. get, get so, on to treatment. Okay, so basics, <laughs> we want to do a generally unprocessed diet as much as we can. Obviously, we all eat some processed foods, but the bulk of it, whatever you can, um, ideally non-GMO organic. If you can, try to not be super rushed when you eat, which can be hard when you're seeing patients and such. Um, filter your water if you can. Drink. We talked about drinking warm water throughout the day is, is another little... That's all sorry. I mean, I would really yeah, like it. Yeah, so I'm taking an Ayurvedic medicine course, uh, formal course, and there was one of the leaders of this particular form of Ayurveda flew over to America to give a, give a class first time to America, he's on the plane, he's looking around, he's like, oh no, these people are not doing good. Uh, How am I going to help all these people? Like, I can't help the whole United States. And then he remembered, like, oh, my uncle told me, like, the hot water trick. Yeah. 
It's a very simple, I have not delved into so, the research, okay. but you literally, uh-huh. you boil good quality water for 10 minutes or whatever you want to do, and then you drink it at whatever temperature you would drink tea. You just sip on on warm to, to hot water at a comfortable temperature throughout the day. Either You can put a tea bag in it if you want, but this is literally just warm water and yeah and they said it's like a it's a it's a detoxification principle in ayurvedic medicine that helps reduce ama or toxicity in the body that anyone has access to so in chinese medicine in my right. I, I me and rebecca have very different chinese medicine trainings no, i was I training in classical chinese she was trained in ccm yeah. d- different schools in my classical chinese medicine training and probably yours too they talk about you have to avoid cold right, right. when you drink never eat cold never drink cold never, never eat cold. cold they yeah. consider your stomach a fire organ yeah and so it needs to maintain heat to cook the food right. for you to have proper digestion yeah, it's like a pot on a stove right. so yes. if you put a bunch of ice in there just you stop your fire. digestive process yeah. and so that was one of the and i think i am i am deadly paranoid of like i would never put ice water oh, ice in my ice water, water. Yeah. but i think it's because i was brainwashed by the chinese oh, a very old interesting it's not clear to me which one is older ayurveda or chinese medicine of but course they're i think they've told said ayurveda but who knows <laughs> Probably Chinese medicine will say Chinese yeah. medicine. Uh, but I, but I mean, the same rule. Yeah, same yeah, rule. principles, which we've yep. all forgotten. We and... figured something else out. One thing, this is kind of an aside, but, yeah. you know, feeding an infant right now, I've had many practitioners tell me you can feed them milk straight out of the fridge. No problem. Oh, oh my God. They and say definitely no. don't do that. I would say no. Across the board, ENTs, pediatricians, everybody, even the CDC has a whole thing. Cold milk from the fridge is okay for your infant. Wow. And I was just like, oh, and they even encourage it because they say, you know, try to get your infant used to it so it's less work for you and in a pinch we did it once and she spit it all up and got like GERD yeah I would that that to me sounds like the most anti like the, the opposite yeah, they thing definitely I don't just, do cold milk yeah because of my yeah because of this traditional medicine yeah. background I was like I just in, it doesn't I can't, feel right I yeah can't do it I'm sure a lot of people have good luck with it and... I mean we grew up on cold milk with the, yeah. the cereal that was cookies yeah. oh cookie yeah the cereal, cereal that was cookies that was is exactly what it was oh, yeah. unfortunately that was still a college meal pebbles. cookie crisp my poor children are traumatized because they don't get any of that that's good for them okay so <laughs> other things um we know stress has a negative impact on gut function, ATP, allergies, histamine, all of those things, right? So just, mm-hmm. just yes, a, just uh, that's a good dough. That's a good dough. Um, again, you know, with Ayurvedic medicine, they really emphasize having your heavier meals earlier in the day and dinner not being super heavy. Mm-hmm. Th- this might be different in Chinese medicine. I don't know, but they say your digestive fire I mean, is greatest between yeah. 10 and 2. So, so we learned yeah. in Chinese medicine, we have the Chinese medicine clock from seven uh, to nine, it's large intestine. Mm-hmm. From one to three, it's small intestine. And if, no, what? Oh my God! But they agree midday. So <laughs> they say they say uh, uh, breakfast like a king, uh, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper. Okay, so this is similar. They say like a. Uh, some breakfast, but not super heavy. And then between 10 and 2, have your biggest meal. And then don't eat a lot right before bed. Try to finish eating by 7. Yeah. Um, that type of thing. Do you think so somebody's going to take away my Chinese medicine license because I don't know the clock time? I, I know. I deserve it. It's... I deserve it. Um, okay. So it's just a reminder, like when we're getting in the minutiae and really trying to figure out what's going on with someone... I feel like we just frequently miss the yes, forest. Yes, these the are trees. really, yep, I agree. Um, so it would be good for all of us to try to remember that so we don't have to bang our head against the wall and try to figure out like the 50th intervention to do when we're not. Uh, doing the basic right yeah one of my teachers used to call all of this the basic treatment guidelines on the end of every visit this is what you you get schooled in 
And if you, if we all did this, we probably wouldn't need us that often. Just live like a human. (laughs) Put ourselves out of business. Yep. Dude, there's enough sick people. How often are you guys bringing up the like four hour meal spacing migrating motor complex concept? I feel like we just, we frequently run out of time, but I try to at least address it at some point during our conversation. But I do feel like they, they messed everyone up when they said to keep eating snacks all day. Yeah. I I am going to say I bring it up probably 80% of my visits. Yep. And uh, what I tell people. Do people not remember? What I. Just reminding them. I mean, I... You assume they might I assume that it's just Snack I don't culture is hard to it's crazy fight. I yeah. also tell them that snacking is a modern phenomenon yeah. that was created right. by the food industry yeah. to take yeah. up more stomach space yeah, Good idea. Make money yeah. yeah. that they want more stomach space which is why a lot of these snacks are yeah. airy like puffs because oh. they don't take up space yeah. puffs are good puffs are addictively good <laughs> because they have crunch yeah. and they've got air Salty. so you can just keep on eating, the, eating the it cheese puffs film. and yeah. even the vegan cheesy ones are good I know they might be better I know so right. so I it, it comes up a lot for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My downfall is a bag of potato chips if I've had a really stressful day. While you're charting. <laughs> There's a canyon but but the the ones in avocado oil oh, that I yeah. told you guys about that are very healthy. Healthy is in quotes, right? Those. Healthy is in quotes. Yep. They have coconut oil, Alana. Co- avocado oil. Oh, avocado oh. oil. I'm like, cardiologists Even hate better. coconut oil. Yeah, I used better. to stop on a really bad day. I used to stop at Wendy's and get french fries and eat <laughs> them in the car on the way home. Wow. No, I did not oh. get the frosty Rebecca, but no. ketchup, lots of ketchup. Mm. And I would eat it in the car driving home on 26. There's nothing more I American than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was wor- if I was working late and it was like 8 o'clock. I was like, I don't have no self-control and there is Wendy's. Okay, um, so we talked about all that. Some basics for environmental allergy. So before we get into, again, more of the, the specifics, we talk about environmental controls, which just means the basics you want to do to keep your environment relatively healthy, like wash your sheets in hot water every week. Mm-hmm. Every um, week. I don't do that. Okay, this is what we tell I people. I really recommend it, especially for... I can't keep up with I once a week. Oh, oh yeah that makes sense everyone has toenail fungus especially in the pacific northwest and oh, they're putting their same socks on they're using the same towels things uh, don't hopefully dry they're out washing here. their socks <clears throat> okay wait, okay. wait. so I'm surprised how many people wear the same every socks week again. you are washing linens every week well i have help oh yeah, 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 yeah. I I've, can't do it every week. I have patients that do it every week. Towels. Lamisole works great for the toenail fungus for people. <laughs> yeah. so I, I actually, you know what I think works even better is a DMSO fluconazole topical yeah, agent. I, do I don't that. think that works as well off the bat. I feel like I give the medicine and then I order that after. Huh. So, also, selenium sulfide shampoo ooh. as a foot wash. Ooh, this is all too involved. Yeah, we just we straight yeah. tangent here. Yeah. <laughs> we straight off no, of that. I mean, this, this is too involved of a treatment <laughs> than taking Lamisil. But, but yes, I still do it. I support washing sheets on high uh, high heat. Okay, yes. Patients get confused about that because sheets will say wash on cold. Oh yeah, no, no. high. So... Hi, I have them wash it in hot water, dry it in the dryer on hot. Yeah. And then um, other basic things like dust mite cover, super oh. easy. Yep. Ideally, no pets in the bed bedroom but my my everyone who has a pet says you can't really control that you can't. Yeah. um they're op- so cute if so it's cute. not your allergy season open the window a bit in the bedroom for ventilation if it is your allergy season maybe don't open the window um so those are just some basics and then air filters for- what's your thought about air purifiers air filters are great for the bedroom and i've seen them make a significant difference for some patients with their sleep quality uh fatigue the next day if because dust mites are everywhere so oh, if it's yeah. like so you know we're not associated with any any of the brands but there's a, do we name the couple brands that yeah we okay I think that's fine. so austin air is great it's a little bit pricier um bl- the one we have in the blue air blue air i like it's very economical and people can can get a small unit um there's lots of other ones like iq air and 
um, the, there's one called Air Doctor that mm-hmm. um, is really good as well. So I think that can be really helpful in the bedroom. What are your thoughts about plants? Mm. It's a good question. If someone has mold allergies, it's not ideal to have mm. plants that are going to be soaking in wet water right. in their home. But if it's not in their bedroom and they really like plants, I don't tell them to. Okay, so I just want to say that my husband, who has, like, the greenest thumb ever for home plants, he says if they're soaking in wet water, you are not properly potting that. And you're not properly potting that plant. That's probably true. But it's going to be damp soil in the house, so, right? It's going to be Well, so usually, I know what he does is he puts, like, a layer of rocks on the bottom and then soil and then the plant, so everything drops out of the rocks. Okay. And then there's there's also an underplate that catches everything to drip away. Gotcha. I don't, I don't. But I don't, uh, st- as a standard, I don't recommend people remove houseplants because they have other benefits. Totally. But if they find it's bugging them or whatever, you know, keep it out Get of the out. bedroom. Out of the bedroom yeah. yeah. And then carpeting, are you pretty heavy? I hate carpet. With... <laughs> Me too. We're all sitting on carpet right now. Yours is the... nice. But <laughs> yeah. in general, Your carpet's fine, but everybody else's. <laughs> carpet, it's relatively it's, new. It's basically like a vector of dust yeah. and mold spores yeah, and disgusting. pet dander. Yep. And That's you can't clean it. I mean, you can try. You can get a HEPA vacuum, but yeah. it's not really cleanable. So if you have allergies, removing carpet can make a huge totally. difference in how you feel. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So then we'll get into pharmacologic methods next. Okay, great. So, okay. So I want to talk about this study from the 1980s that I found, which was really nice. They compared... Um, we're going to extrapolate some information, but they had four different protocols for 80 patients who had urticaria or angioedema from certain foods. So we know not everyone who has food sensitivities has that severe of allergy, but I thought it was an interesting um, study because they did have, you know, documented manifestations from food exposures. And I wanted to see what worked for these people. They're not they're not like fully anaphylaxis. They're not just food sensitivity. Um, it's sort of, it is a se- serious reaction, but I just, I thought it was interesting because of the different protocols they compared. So um, what they did was they treated these patients for four to six weeks with, with various interventions. Um, and they talked about how, of course, you want to avoid the foods that are giving you this significant of reactions, particularly angioedema, of course. Mm-hmm. Urticaria, I have a lot of patients where they don't know exactly what's causing the food, what's causing mm-hmm. the reaction. It might be a food sensitivity. So if patients have um, something like urticaria, for example, that's more in line with what we're kind of dealing with, mm-hmm. like food sensitivity, possible related symptoms that are kind of hard to identify and what medications might be helpful I'm extrapolating that to people with like skin manifestations of, of yeah, like, like or, yeah. or any food, basically any sort of difficult to figure out reactions from foods. I'm kind of like using this study to say, okay, what medications might be helpful? Can I, in your, in your yeah. experience clinically, what's the delay in like a person eats a mm. bunch of eggs and then they get a psoriasis flare? What's the timing? You know, the problem is with psoriasis or, or with psoriasis in particular, they basically are off they're just having symptoms so it's not it's hard to tease out which is why we don't especially this is allergy and pseudo allergy they just all they know is like there are certain foods that seem to make make me Mm. get this but i don't know exactly which ones i just know like Mm -hmm. it's worse maybe after i I ate that meal or whatever you know but i find it to be such a delayed response Mm -hmm. it can definitely be really hard one to to pinpoint but two to get patient Mm buy-in right because they're like or the opposite they just cut 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 and then they're eating nothing they get too much buy-in right and it might not be food totally right and so for urticaria obviously there can be lots of different we'll just use that as an example because we see that a lot and um for that there can be, you know, many different triggers, but 
but foods, I do have patients that come in thinking foods are part of their problem, but mm -hmm. they just don't know which one. Mm -hmm. So they talk about in the study how you can use medication as a preventative as well as a, as a treatment, obviously, um, in addition to avoiding whatever you can identify. And they looked at chromalin, ketotifin, H1, and H2 blockers. Those are my uh, four favorite right? His, yes. histamine agents. There yes. it is. So overall, they found H1 blockers didn't really differ from placebo in this sort of urticarial manifestation as far as changing that response. Okay, H1 blockers, this is like Allegra, Allegra Claritin. Claritin. Yeah, okay, those Which are we brands. don't typically think of as, you know, always, you know, helping with urticaria or gut stuff, but sometimes they do. Um, oral chromalin was more successful in food allergy that could be documented, like an IgE reaction, than in pseudo-allergy, which means like someone thinks they have a reaction, but we can't really identify it through skin testing or blood testing. And is yeah. this like consistent chromalin use or dosing it right before you eat the thing? I believe they gave it to them for several weeks and were kind of oh. monitoring like, did this help and was it significantly different from placebo? While keeping the diet pretty much the same. Yeah, like avoiding what they thought they were reactive to, but they still had symptoms, you okay. know? Um, and then ketotifin was was definitely helpful, and H1, H2 combination was more effective than either alone, mm -hmm. which I think are, these are all things we kind of, chromalin and ketotifin often do help, and we do find H1 and H2, from what I, our mentors always said, is they have a synergistic yeah. effect. Mm -hmm. That's so what I see, too. better than either one alone. Um and I will say that's what I do. What I do is if I'm thinking there's a allergic component to it, I'll start them on an H1, H2 together. Right. And I'll see if I get anywhere because that will give me a definitive, yes, I'm on the right track or nope, probably not this. How are yeah. you? Are you doing one one of each once a day? Or I'm starting with one of each once a day. Yeah. And I if they don't get uh, effects from one H1 or one H2, mm -hmm. I'll have them switch the drug. Oh. You, so, like, you I don't do. think that they all work equal. Like, I think some people do better with... Uh, Loratadine. Loratadine, or some people do better with... Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I. but do you ever dose a 24-hour pill every 12 hours? Yes, if I'm getting somewhere but not enough. Okay. I just want to play around, but I'm going to pretty quickly jump to uh, chromaline, ketotifen, or yeah, both. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, um, so... Basically, overall, and they did mention if you're if you're if the person's already avoiding the foods they know they react to, and in general they're doing pretty good, but they know they might have some sort of exposure. Um, again, we're talking about non-anaphylactic type stuff. You can give H one and H two blockers thirty minutes before a food exposure. They mm -hmm. talked about how that that potentially can be helpful. Um, I would say the same is probably true about chromalin. Yeah. Probably, yeah, because chromalin, we sometimes I'll have people either do, you know, we'll talk about specifics of yeah. using those drugs, but that, that would make sense to do it um, probably with chromalin and ketotifen. I, I definitely have done it with chromalin. Ketotifen, I, I think of ketotifen as more systemic. Longer half-life yeah. kind of thing, yeah. But chromalin, for sure, I have a multitude of patients who, when they eat out, yeah. I'll have them dose chromalin before they eat out every meal. Yep. Because that is when they're That's most when they likely flare. to get their yeah. reaction. Yeah. I, I've had patients with ketotifin. They found that they, oh, that really? works for them as well. Like if they're going out to eat. I don't know the time frame of when they're taking it. But mm -hmm. they specifically said like when I take it, I don't react like I usually do. But I don't I don't recall like if they were doing it a certain amount of time before mm -hmm. food. Um, okay. And then there's a couple articles I found uh, with antihistamine, anti-allergy medications and IBS. So I'll, I, just, I, I thought I would mention a few of them. 
um, there was a placebo-controlled trial with ketodafin, um, and it showed a positive effect of decreasing visceral hypersensitivity mm. in IBS patients and decreasing IBS symptoms. So it's having this effect in the gut. I don't know if I've ever and seen that, but I don't know if I'm looking. Any... With ketodafin? Mm-hmm. I'm not asking specifically about it, but if it's decreasing food reactivity. Yeah, but no, the visceral hypersensitivity. Oh, I like, don't ask specifically. But... I don't know if I've ever thought until this moment right now, that visceral hypersensitivity could be the reaction of a histamine response locally in the GI. That's a little bit mind-blowing. But wouldn't that be like visceral hypersensitivity, yes, it makes, bloating, discomfort? It makes so much yeah. sense. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever put them together. Uh, any idea if that was IBS, constipation, diarrhea, or both? They didn't specify for that okay. study. Um, the next one, the chromolin, it was also a positive study, meaning it was helpful, where they found the combination of avoiding known food triggers and adding chromolin was better than just avoiding dietary food triggers for patients with IBSD. And I suspect that's because they have food triggers that they don't know of, mm-hmm. and they're ingesting inhalants and have other triggers that we just can't avoid, even if they're avoiding their food sensitivities. Um, another chromolin study that was positive showing decreased mucosal mast cell activation in jejunal biopsies and reduced abdominal pain. And that was in patients with IBSD. Hmm. Um, so, so that makes sense. Yeah. Some good trials for ketodafin and chromalin. Um, and then I wanted to just talk a little bit about the specific drugs and any tips we have. Mm-hmm. The first one, um, so we'll go through ketodafin, chromalin, H1, H2 blockers. Um, with with H1, H2, well, actually, let's start with ketodafin. So ketodafin, you you all know, but it has to be compounded in the U.S. and other countries. It can be it can be uh, a normal medication. Um, we've dosed it in various ways, going as low as 0.25 milligrams, going to up to two milligrams twice a day. Mm-hmm. So I, as low as 0.25 once a day, up to two milligrams twice a day. I think our favorite allergen is going as high as six milligrams three times a day. Our favorite, al- well, yeah, you can go higher. I don't like yeah, to go higher I don't than either. twice a day. Um, but- it is, so a couple of pointers. It is very, very sedating, especially yes, at first. Sedating. It has a long half-life, especially at first. Uh, it will make your appetite increase. So waking is right. a side effect, which is great for cachexic pa- patients right. or underweight patients. And a lot of these patients have been down to five foods. Right. And so they could really use the weight gain, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it is also, for me, in my personal experience, just a little note, when I get very, very stressed out, like when my cortisol is revving and then I get insomnia because I get insomnia when my cortisol is revving, ketodafin yeah. can always reset that yeah. because it uh, histamine the... is the byproduct of cortisol. Totally. Right. How, how long are you holding people at a dose before you'd increase? It uh, depends on the... It, it's so annoying because it's so... There's no way to predict yeah, who's going to tolerate what dose. Mm-hmm. So I often will start at one milligram and give them instructions for what to do based on their response of either going down on dose or going up on dose. Because oh, you can empty out part of a capsule. Sure. That way we're not like fiddling around with 0.25 milligram caps from the beginning unless they want to because you can always empty out a quarter half I capsule. start at two I do the opposite I start at 0.25 right. because it when I started taking it it the one milligram not, yeah, knocked me out. the hell out do you dose it first at night I dose it at night yeah. because I think then it helps with their sleep and it's pretty sedating so I start at 0.25 milligrams and then I have them work up usually if they're getting some effect but not enough I feel comfortable ratcheting it up by a quarter of a milligram each time and like probably every, a, days? every three to five days yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, the challenge is, so some people might need two milligrams and then it takes, so I, mm-hmm. I've gone back and true. forth, like what to start with, because then they might lose interest by the it's time we totally true, get to two milligrams. Right. I would say my, I have maybe 25% of the people I try it on, want to stay on it because it really helps them and they don't, and they can be functional on it. For whatever reason, a lot of my patients, the sedation becomes um, it's too issue. much of a problem. Oh. No, no, for the majority of my patients, the sedation is too much of a problem, whereas other doctors I've talked to say that it's not a problem, and I yeah. don't really understand what is going on you with that. You might have a sensitive population. That could be why. I also do think people do develop tolerance to it. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, if you ride it out long enough, right? Yeah. But then if you stop it and restart, you have sedation again. Yes, wait, absolutely. Wait, you mean tolerance to the drug? Yes, like the to the sedation. Oh, okay. Yeah. You don't get as and then And then if you, so if you slow it down, if you yeah. discontinue, you need to kind of start right. at the bottom again. Because exactly. that, that uh, tolerance goes away. And then a lot of our patients have fatigue, and then we're like, is this making your fatigue worse? I don't know. I've been on it. And then you have to you know, you yeah. stop it and try again. Um, I do have this interesting chart of brain histamine receptor op- occupancies of various antihistamines, and ketotifen is second to the most of uh, cool. occupying uh, brain histamine H1 receptors, only second to chlorpheniramine, which is the over-the-counter, I believe, mm. uh, chlortrimeton, I think. Wow. Um, right by hydroxyzine. So ketotifen is, that's that's why it's super sedating. It's getting... Wow. You know, it's affecting brain histamine. Right by a hydro. Do do either of you use hydroxazine? I've had a handful of patients where it helps a lot. I've had a I've had a couple patients where it helped their food sensitivity. The his the hydroxazine. I was prescribing it for sleep. What dose? Because the dose twenty five. It was like twenty five. Huge on that. Yeah, it was twenty five or fifty. Okay. That they were taking at night. Dose at night. Yeah. You can give it during the day for anxiety as needed, and we used to do that a lot in regular medicine. But you Um, have to be amped, or you're gonna. You're going to fall asleep. It, for whatever reason, so, so some people it would be fine and other people, yeah, they couldn't function with it during the day. I wonder so. about like low dosing throughout the day with it because you can give like five milligrams. I don't know what the half-life is, so we'd have yeah. to see. I'm sure that maybe it has a shorter half-life, which is why we would right. have people take it a few times a day as needed for anxiety. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so going back to the uh, different meds. So we talked about ketotifen and then chromalin, you know, pretty standard I usually tell them to start one vial four times a day in their water bottle, which has to be an opaque water bottle because it's light sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they're not having any improvement after a week or two, I have them go up to eight vials a day because I told you about the patient I had where four vials a day did nothing and eight vials a day re- reduced his EOE symptoms by 50 to 75%. Not so you, so I would push it to the eight vials a day. It's very safe. Um, if it's not covered by insurance, it's overly, it's cost prohibitive. Yep. Um, some people react to the plastic vials that comes in. So then you can get it calm down, compounded, but it is pricier. And I, than the compounded product doesn't dissolve well in water. It's a little trickier to use. So you can take it as a capsule, but if we're trying to treat EOE, right, obviously you want, it depends where you're trying to get the medicine to the, yeah, so what part of the GI tract. Do the best you can. You're right. So I tend to, I don't. I, I typically will see if the commercial version is covered and works for someone. If it doesn't, I've had an occasional patient where they want to stick with the compounded. Um, Are you but, seeing it covered for like a formal diagnosis of EOE? No. It doesn't have the, to be covered for, a di- okay. it's usually the insurance. It yeah. doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. Okay. Yep, totally. That's exactly only, what yeah. I found. And I, I will also say just as a little hint, good RX. Yeah. Is the, but pretty much it's either good RX or Costco. Yep. And it's worth comparing because good RX changes their prices almost daily. So there are certain places that are cheaper at certain times. So they should just do a quick search. It becomes annoying because then you have to change that prescription. But it's either GoodRx or Costco. Okay. Wow. If you're paying cash. If you look up in Hippocrates, it it does have um, some more serious side effects listed for Chromalin. But we've never... 
I don't know that any of us has ever seen anything. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything serious. The only thing I've seen is if they feel like they're reacting to it a little bit because of the plastic or whatever. Um, that's really the only, I feel like that's the only side effect I, and I've seen in any What are the ones listed? Uh, pancytopenia and oh. like, yeah, there were some weird ones listed. Allergic reaction, obviously pancytopenia. Common ones were listed as headache, diarrhea, abdominal pain, rash, hmm. which I haven't really seen. Those. I've seen some of those. Okay. Yeah. Weird. Headaches, Kinesis? especially. I've seen headaches, especially. Um, that's a great question. Yes, I think the person that I'm thinking about had headaches. She had to discontinue it. She tolerates ketotifen great, hmm. but she had to discontinue her chromalin, and it was because it caused headaches. She's also a headache person, which yeah. I put in quotes, uh, but it was enough to make it not doable. Wow. And she's also just a crazy mass cell person. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about H1, H2 blockers. So um, I prefer to do, for H1 blockers, I prefer to do trials of fexofenadine and loratadine over cetirizine because cetirizine tends to be more sedating. And I do feel like there's been some potential for more withdrawal type rebound symptoms when mm-hmm. st- someone stops cetirizine. But I have a handful of patients where that is the one that works. So yeah. we'll go to that, but I'll have them do trials of fexofenadine and loratadine first. Mm-hmm. Um, fexofenadine, 180 milligrams once a day. You can go higher, but I don't love to do BID dosing. You can though. Um, loratadine, I typically do 10 milligrams once to twice a day um, for, for that as well. And I'll have them try each one for two to three weeks. If there's no shift, I'll have them switch to the other one. If neither of them do anything, then I'll have them do the cetirizine trial. Um, And then we just talk about looking out for, you know, excessive dry mouth, constipation, urinary retention, which would be really rare Mm -hmm. in sort of middle-aged population, but maybe more concerning in older people. Uh, I don't recall anyone. I've seen constipation occasionally get worse. Hmm. I haven't had anyone have the other I've seen constipation get better. In more, I like, have seen that too. Yeah, classically get... MCAS right, folks. But right. even, I, I have one patient who their allergist put them on four times a day, loratadine, and constipation got better. Wow. So it's it just coming down sense, the gut reactions. I mean, yeah. it's coming down the gut yeah. reactions, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and then are you always using H1, H2 blockers together, or are you sometimes just using H1 blockers? So I, I want them to know what's doing what. So I'll have the, the way I write it mm-hmm. out is I have them do the, the two to three week trial of the, the H1 blockers. If one of them works, they continue it. If neither of them works, but they tolerate one of them, I have them continue it and then add the H2 blocker just so we can see if that synergistic effect works better than just dropping the H1, even if they don't have any noticeable improvement. If they tolerate it, continue, add the famotidine, 20 milligrams twice a day, do that for a couple weeks, and then let's see if you have any improvement. What are you doing? I'm doing H1 and H2 once a day for two weeks. You're always starting with both of them together. That's what I'm doing. Because I find benefit. And I... It's smart to parse them apart. I mean, my big question, when I'm at least starting somebody, I'm like, is this a mast cell issue? Yeah, exactly. And so I want a yes or a no before I start going down the mast cell trial. I, I think I usually give them a week and then tell them, bump it up to twice a day if you notice nothing. Okay. That's I, what I have in my notes, too. But yeah. I can't say I've seen people have improvement on twice a day when they didn't have any improvement on once a day. I have. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. I don't know if I have, but I don't know if I have I enough. I think it, it, it's not zero improvement. Right. I like. I want some improvement. Yeah. Otherwise, like, we're, we're jumping ship. Okay. But if there's some improvement, you know, but there's room for... Yes, right, I definitely agree. I agree. Then. Yeah. If yeah. you're getting some, but it's not strong enough, yeah. I do agree BID dosing will work. Yeah. And then FOMO, the thing that always comes up with, with famotidine H2 blocker is, is it affecting absorption digestion because Mm -hmm. of course this is the drug we used to use for reflux and such and so you know my general thought is with that the way i explain it to people is i think the benefit outweighs the risk at least for 
like a six to 12 month trial. Mm -hmm. I agree. Like I would love for you to not take it forever. Um, we'll go over some reasons for that, but I think in general, it's worth seeing if you get benefit, if we can fix enough other things, you may not need it. And if you do need it, the benefit off can often still outweigh the risk. So it, you know, I haven't really messed around with giving it at certain times of day and then giving like enzymes and HCL with food and that whole thing. I just have them take it twice a day. But if they are going to be on it for a longer time, I could see the benefit of giving them some digestive support with their meals, yeah. you know. Um, and so long term, there are some studies that show if you stay on something like famotidine after two years, 25 percent of patients had B12 deficiency. So less than PPIs, but still... That's not a little amount, though. It's not a little amount. Yeah. And there was... there was, They couldn't prove this necessarily, but there was concern for other nutrient deficiencies, like the common things we think about, calcium, zinc, copper, right. iron, et cetera, chromium, magnesium. So um, you can, of course, increase your food consumption of, of things with those nutrients and or supplement if you're going to be on an H2. Would it make sense to just put people on a multi? You could definitely just do a multi if they Will they it, absorb it? If they're on an H2 blocker. Yes, that's the question. I, I suspect they would absorb it, um, maybe not to the full zero, extent. Right, it just affects it to some extent. But I also think, again, if they're on it long term, we could play around with like, do you need it once or twice a day? Can we get just give it at bedtime? Can we just give it first thing in the morning and you don't eat till, you know, yeah. we can mm -hmm. kind of play around with, with different ways. Um, there was an interesting case report of suspected famotidine induced hypomagnesemia leading to hypocalcemia. Makes sense. Um, and so a patient, an, an elderly patient presented with confusion and muscle cramps. And it was the only case report I found of like a significant nutrient effect mm. of being on famotidine. They pulled the famotidine. Um, they initially didn't pull the famotidine, just replaced nutrients. She came back and had recurrence of symptoms, and they pulled the famotidine, and she was fine. Hmm. Um, so they assumed that that was part of why she wasn't absorbing. And also elderly, so that was also was part elderly. of why she wasn't absorbing. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's very rare to cause a serious nutrient malabsorption issue, especially in the short term with and famotidine. And benefits, again. Again, benefits outweigh yeah. the, the cons, and long term, you can sort of mitigate those. And then supplements? Do you have supplement options? We do. Um, so we've talked about in general how I think several of us are starting with medications. Of course, we have patients that prefer to take supplements. And so the way I've been explaining it is just that let's see if we can get an answer. Again, if we should go down mm -hmm. this pathway. That's what I say too. And if we do get benefit, then sure, we can switch you to supplements if you want to try that instead. Yeah. And it's all the ones we've talked about on and off, quercetin, nettles, vitamin C. Um, one, one thing with quercetin uh, as someone with chickpea anaphylaxis and mm. other legume IgE reactions. So certain quercetin formulas can be derived from plants in the legume family. So if your patient does have that issue, they, okay. they'll have Okay, there to are it. some other risks for quercetin. One is super high doses of quercetin prevents conversion of T4 to T3. So that's really important to know. What are you so, talking about, more than two grams a day? I would say more than two grams a day. Okay. There's a risk. And also there's a fair amount of uh, animal data that, again, says high doses of quercetin can cause benign tumors of the kidneys. Interesting. And that those are, knowing. yeah, I mean, it's worth knowing. And <laughs> like one of the things we're always up against is if somebody walks into the ER or sees their GP and then they do a lit search, this is the stuff that's going to come up. Yeah. And so you need to educate the patient. I've never seen it. I'll, I'll often go my high dose. I mean, when I'm very, uh, when I'm being aggressive with healing up the mucous membrane, because there is great data on quercetin yeah. mucous membrane, uh, I'll go two grams three times a day for a month. Okay. Or maybe even two weeks, but I won't go longer than that. And then I'll usually dram, drop it to a gram a day or a gram twice a day. Do you monitor T3? Uh, if, they're, if they have a thyroid issue, yeah. then 
uh, I will not put them on doses that high. We have lots of other options. If they're on thyroid medication, uh, if they're not, then I feel like a month, if they're having a decrease of their conversion, they're going to report pretty quickly that they're feeling exhausted. And I'm only dosing them no longer than a month, oftentimes two, two weeks tops. And there is some really interesting data that shows that with quercetin, with resveratrol, which is high in quercetin, if you like super physiologically dose them for a short amount of time and then you weigh drop your dose, you actually get the same efficacy because that super physiologic dose helps maintain it. So two weeks of really, really high dosing and then normal dosing after that. Resveratrol works really Mm -hmm. well. Like at the end of a whatever protocol to treat the microbiome, dosing that really helps get rid of those like lingering 20 to 30 percent of symptoms. I, it's expensive. It's expensive right? so and it's I've a lot of pills. It. Yeah, it's a ton of pills and expensive. I've tried just doing the like low dose and it doesn't work. I know there's something about the super physiologic you dosing for a dose. short yep. amount of time that makes it more effective. Yep. It's true. I haven't seen any concerning data on resveratrol use more long term at uh, have so, you? Uh, I it's been a while since I've done a lit search. Okay. I will say it will cause diarrhea. I've sure, had, but I've had two then patients... your patient will be able to tell you as opposed to this kid benign kidney well, tumor issue. I, it's true. So I've had two patients that got an abdominal rash. From resveratrol. Super physiologic dosing, yeah. I told them to take Benadryl, wait for it to clear, and then resume at the lower dose. Right. And they they got the same benefit from it. Okay. So. Yeah. It's an interesting. So nothing is benign and everything, nothing is fully benign. Everything has risks and benefits. And I would say the pharmaceuticals definitely in general, are quite safe I as just, opposed to the right. pharmaceuticals we use in medicine. I Personally, in my experience, I think that the pharmaceuticals work better and faster, yeah. but I think they're not as well tolerated as the supplements. Yeah. I think supplements are really? better tolerated, for sure. It dep- I feel like it depends on the person. I have okay. some patients that just don't, they don't tolerate any supplements. We have to use all meds and vice versa. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know if it's partially our psychological bias, like if someone just doesn't want to take a medicine or they just, you know, I I don't think there's a psychological bias in our patient population against supplements. Yeah. But I think there is against drugs, pharmacologic agents, and that might affect tolerance, you know? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. um, Okay, so that's That's, interesting tidbit. uh I, I have a significant number of patients where their anxiety improves when we do this histamine mast cell yeah. treatment, like oh, yeah, makes sense. significantly yep. more than any SSRI or psychological treatment or psychiatric medication, like uh, something like cetirizine and famotidine. Yep. So just I can see that makes that makes perfect sense. So again, when we go back to the byproduct of cortisol is histamine. Yeah, they're on high alert. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to explain that a little bit more? Yeah, that was, I learned that. I took an endobiogeny training. Um, So what is endobiogeny? I can't even tell you. I paid God knows how much money for a year. 10,000? I think five. I think five. Uh, It's very, very complicated. The person who teaches it is a genius who understands physiology, like, you know, pretty meticulously. Um, And he explains that when one of the byproducts of when you're secreting a ton of cortisol, the byproduct that the body is making is histamine. So it's sort of like you're stressed out cortisol is going up and it's just going to happen that histamine is going to go and up And cortisol pu- pushes up the histamine production. So you're going to have, it's part of this whole like stress as yes. a factor in MCAS. It's just a physiologic. Exactly. It's like a non-arguable exactly. result of the physiology. And, you know, in my experience, when I am very aggressively stressed and yeah. anti, the strongest mast cell stabilizer is the only thing that gets me to sleep. Right. And Luckily, I don't have trouble sleeping. Works. I've never <laughs> tried hydroxyzine for myself, but I think I should. Really? No. Yeah. Um, Okay. That was awesome. That was a ton. Can I give you my recap? And then Dr. Sand gives me her recap. And then you guys give us your recap in the future. Okay. Uh, My recap is a food allergies. You use the food allergy testing. I don't, but that's an option doing the food, the IgG. Not not my, 
Not my number one. Not your number, number one, two. but also an option if you're trying but to rule it in or out. And ve- it's probably useful for or kids. Or adults. Uh, also, the other <laughs> testing is sending them to an allergist to get the, spic- uh, the skin poop That's testing. for environmental mostly. That, okay. You can do it for food, but I, I do it mostly for environmental. Got it. Okay. And uh, other things is the treatments. The treatments are all of our favorites. The H1, H2, chromalin, catodafin, quercetin, nettles, vitamin C, DAO maybe. Right. Um, also, this is just a thing that you have to think about with your chronic IBS patients is, is the is it a mast cell issue and not a food issue or an, like, is that, this should be in your, our differential. Right. And we didn't talk about this today, but in the treatment part from last time we talked about, obviously, if they have a lot of inhalant allergens, thinking about immunotherapy with the allergist, right. allergy shots or sublingual immunotherapy could help decrease their overall load of things right. inflaming their gut. Turn down the volume. Yep. Uh, Quick question. Fish oil? Is there any role for fish oil in this? You know, fish oil is one of those things that there's all these exactly, research studies on. Exactly. But it doesn't work clinically. <laughs> I don't... One of my mentors... It works for TBIs. Yeah. It works yeah. for some things, but I don't necessarily see it work for this. And I, one of my mentors had taught me that if, if someone has kind of a compromised GI tract, it's a very concentrated fat, and yeah. they don't... I don't... I wonder if they're breaking it down well enough to have it have the effects that it needs to have. I think there's definitely good data on cardiac disease and TBI and And neurologic issues and mental health. health. I, I I have patients come in on it and they almost always tell me, I say, is it doing anything? They almost always say, I don't know. I've just been yeah. on it. I think so, it's not going to hurt. Right. Uh, except it's kind of expensive to get the good right, stuff. But right. It's probably not going to fix the problem. Right. I agree. We've had more results with the ProResolvin mediators, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the more concentrated yeah. in the post-COVID right. syndrome world totally. that we can talk about. I would agree. Time. I think it, the only thing I want to add to the summary is encouraging patients to try the medications not only as a treatment, but like a test. Mm-hmm. Like, are yeah. we down the right pathway for you? This will help us identify. And then we can open up the world of all the treatments we have right um to just see if this is even the problem right i agree i'm gonna do a quick summary too so (laughs) so 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 food sensitivity expiration consider elimination challenge diet and or igg food testing inhalant allergy expiration for patients with gut issues and possible atopy consider the ige region 17 inhalant panel if you're in the northwest in the northwest if you Mm -hmm. live somewhere else look it up and or referral to the allergist treatment obviously avoid things that you can avoid do environmental controls follow the basics do trials of the medications that have shown efficacy for reducing uh, gut and systemic inflammation that we just talked about consider immunotherapy with the allergist if it's appropriate to reduce your overall load that and, was a way better summary than the rest well, of well it was yeah. a lot of scattered information so she also it's just, did the present i know it Anna. was very good it was very well done and i'm just gonna say get rid of your carpet but keep your plants as yes, long as they're yes, well, yes. that would be. That's I would I'm definitely gonna... prefer to keep keep the plants and get rid of the carpet than vice versa. Okay, noted. noted. Okay. Awesome. Oh, awesome! Thanks, yeah. Abby. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Eee! <laughs>